Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Whistleblower Heroes, everyday heroes and educators sharing the information that you need to know here on Revolution Radio, and I'm your host, Ella. Well, what is a whistleblower? A whistleblower is a person who makes public disclosures of wrongdoing, corruption, and crime, and these courageous people often suffer retaliatory actions because of their disclosures. But in the end, many of these people are often the catalysts for needed change and are eventually lauded as heroes. And I'm here to celebrate these heroes and give them a platform because shining a light on wrongdoing wherever it occurs plays an important role in keeping society peaceful, free, and just. So today with me, I have a very interesting man, Mr. Charles Ewing Smith. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about him right now before we get to the topic that we're going to be discussing. Charles Smith has been a sound editor in the film industry since the 1980s. Film credits include... Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Sin City, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and Desperado, among many others. He received Golden Reel nominations for five of his films, Weird Science, The Witches of Eastwick, Robocop 2, Pulp Fiction, and Twister. In 1999, he became the managing director of production for Leonardo DiCaprio's internet media company, Birkin Interactive Studio, Inc., Chuck was executive producer with Richard Gage and co-editor of 9-11 Explosive Evidence, Experts Speak Out, one of the most widely viewed 9-11 documentaries ever made. As a result of its airing on CPT-12 and subsequently at PBS.org, the film started charted as the, most, as the most watched and most shared video surpassing Downton Abbey. After revisiting the complete interview footage of the psychologists who appear at the end of Experts Speak Out, he was moved to make The Demolition of Truth. Psychologists examined 9-11 in order to share their powerful and compelling message. So he's a seeker of truth and justice. Chuck has devoted much of his time and energy toward raising public consciousness on critical issues. So, Charles, I want to say thank you so much for agreeing to the interview. Oh, well, thank you, Ella, for having me on. I'm really honored. You've got had some fantastic guests. I've been very lucky that way. You know, these are it's important to cover topics that, you know, mainstream doesn't want to touch. And, you know, and so many of the people that I'm able to interview – have so much to share, and just for all the right reasons, and it's people like you that help, you know, listeners and the public uh, uh, be able to come to terms with the truth really is, and and, uh, because so much of what we see on mainstream media is controlled. So I think it's really important, even like on our station here, Revolution, Revolution Radio, stations like this exist, and they're really important, you know, because, um, see, there I did it again. Hold on, I'm going to pause it just a second. Mm-hmm. I am struggling with my words today. Don't worry about it. So, Melissa, well, you can cut this out, my friend. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So, anyone listening, if you're listening, you can go ahead and donate at freedomslips.com to keep stations like this alive so we can get you true news and get it to you soon. Mm, I don't know what to do. I'm struggling. Hmm. Would you be, um, hmm, I have a feeling this is going to be tough. 
Um, would you be willing to maybe reschedule tomorrow for the same time, or do you have your? Day, you, I mean, I know you're a busy man. I can I can try to struggle through it. Well, uh, I'm not that busy. I mean, I'm retired. So okay. Uh, what do you think do about doing? The, what do you think about doing it the same time tomorrow? Well, we can certainly go for that. Okay, I'm so sorry because I know we you had you know you allotted some time to do this, but I'm struggling. It's kind of funny. Like yesterday was pretty good. Um, you know, it's strange. Like last week, I had a day that was kind of difficult, like this. Um, but when it first happened, I was having a few days, and it's very scary. It almost feels like your brain's glitching. Um, so, yeah, gosh. You're feeling, are you feeling like uh, you're having trouble uh, structuring an order uh, to what you're saying, or are you having trouble finding the words? Structuring or the order or even finishing the thought. Like the thought will begin, and all of a sudden it just stops. Okay. You know, you know so I can't even find the words to express what I'm thinking. And I feel like a pressure, too, when I'm starting to struggle for it. It's really difficult to to explain to people, especially when you're not able to articulate yourself well. But, well, you know, uh, one thing I, I think that will help you is because you, you haven't had time to watch my uh, Demolition of the Truth documentary. Uh, I gave you the 60, the hour-long version, not the full-length one. Uh, uh-huh. You should probably take a little look at that, and, and uh, that will probably give you some, you know, uh, some order to it, I think. Yeah, uh, I, over, I did. I listened to the second one. And I you made oh, you watched the whole thing? Well, I found your station. I found your YouTube channel, and I watched the first one. I'm sorry, the most recent one uh, with the psychologist. Uh, and then I was going to go back and watch the original one, um, which was really fascinating as well. I just started to watch that, and then I noticed it was time to get on. Yeah, that's, so. the, science. that's the science side of things. Yeah, it was talking about how people feel some, um, when there's that dissonance that um, that exists, that when you have scientific evidence, it has a way of kind of lessening that dissonance with people. So that's kind of where I was at, and that was really interesting. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, it's actually been a problem because uh, as much as the scientific version, you know, the uh, experts speak out, 9-11 explosive evidence uh, from architects and engineers, uh, as much as that one, you know, really nails the science, uh, and, and it includes a section with psychologists uh, that touches on some of the stuff, um, it, it really, you know, people, are, people in America are not up to speed on science. They, don't know, they don't know what to do with it. And they don't have, they, they don't have the ability to, to what I call eidetic imagery, the ability to visualize in their mind, uh, you know, two opposing things and kind of weigh them each against each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's critical to being able to figure your way through this thing because, you know, how can you have come to a conclusion without weighing the evidence against the claims? And uh, yeah. so there has, there has to be that, that duality happening, and most people can't do that. Yeah, they, don't have the, they don't have the mental capacity to... Uh, you know, uh, it's called cognitive dissonance. They yeah. don't have the mental capacity to compare two events uh, fairly and neutrally and come up with an out an outcome. You know, yeah. and it might be different than what they've been trained, and that's certainly what happened to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. you know, to 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 solve your problem, let's do it tomorrow, uh, and uh, and we'll do it until we do it. 
Okay, sounds good. We'll do it. Well, we'll schedule for tomorrow. And you know, if I take certain supplements, like I have ginkgo and all these different things that are supposed to help with your with your mind, and you know, I kind of have a, a regiment of vitamins and supplements I'm supposed to be taking, and, and you know, maybe getting some good sleep. I, last night I didn't have a lot of sleep, so I'm sure that's kind of um, exasperating the issue as well. But it's so frustrating. I couldn't believe. You know, I'm young. This shouldn't be happening to you know a woman. Oh, or I, I hear you. I hear you, but uh, don't worry about it. We'll work our way through it. I'm, you know, as an editor, I'm used to doing things in chunks. So, <laughs> I'm know, used to doing it live, <laughs> so you well, better spend two hours. <laughs> and aren't you lucky we aren't live right now? <laughs> no, thank goodness. Then then you would rescue me. Maybe you would have jumped in. <laughs> well, I'd jump in and just start rattling off stuff, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, I want to keep you with me. <laughs> Yeah, I think I mean, it did happen. I'm Go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it did kind of, you know, but I kind of, people knew that something was going on with me, and I had talked about it on air, and people are very understanding. Um, but it did happen live once, and we just kind of, I kind of stammered my way through it somehow. I don't know. I just, I, 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 I jumped off that train of thought and just jumped onto a new one. <laughs> it didn't make a well, lot of sense. Well, you know, and, and- Half the population probably didn't even notice, you know. That's and I don't right. want to say that about your about your listeners. Listeners, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, statistically, that's probably the case. Yeah, probably so. Okay, well, thanks for your understanding, and I will look. It just gives me more time to prepare, so I appreciate it, and I'll speak to you tomorrow at the same time and same place. We're going to be talking about nine eleven, right? I mean, I, I didn't see a lot on your program about nine eleven. I know that's why I wanted. That's why I think it's really important to cover it. Um, you know, if you saw the website, there's also people we haven't posted as well. So I've interviewed a lot of CIA whistleblowers, NSA, FBI, and some of them are educators, as you know. And uh, yeah, so 9/11 is important to me. I did interview one gentleman named David Schlesinger, but I didn't like the interview. Um, I know David. So you did. Yeah, um, I know not, David. Yeah. Not, yeah, but it was his delivery. He had notes. And every word he read, and you could tell, and then his, his personality was a little, I don't know, we just, uh, I don't know. Uh, he's, yeah, David's a pill. He's, uh, he's, oh, been, he okay. he's been booted around. He's very sincere, and he really that works I, hard. Yeah. You know, I, he's out there on the corners with signs and stuff like that. I mean, he, he really works hard, but his, his personality is very obnoxious. And, yeah, it can uh, be so rough. And, and we, he wanted we to doing, talk. Two weeks. I mean, I guess because he's one of those personalities that needs to be in control and expect everything. And so he called me two weeks prior to the interview and wanted so much, uh, you know, uh, he wanted to speak on the phone almost daily. And I'm just, I finally said, David, you know, he was getting really nervous. And he goes, I just said, David, I have never given this much time to, um, to, you know, an interview, someone I was going to interview. You know, normally we speak a couple times, and then, you know, some people I just speak to for five minutes prior to the show. And so he just, you know, he was just a tough personality. But I, I do appreciate him. I appreciate anybody who's out there trying to share truth or trying to get people thinking, you know, because people are just so conditioned uh, to, you know, I don't know what it is, you know. I guess that's, um, I'm sure there's, you know, something I can find. Maybe I'll find some uh, well, it's, it's information. people are like. It's the false news. They're they're creating you know uh, uh, opposite viewpoints and posting them because they've got control right. of the media. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 
pretty hard to Yeah, and uh, there's something, I've got to find a term. You know, I worked in psychology. I was a drug and alcohol counselor for a while. There must be a term um, that how people just want to believe the best in every situation. I, and I'm optimistic, but they just take information. I think it's just from, you know, I've analyzed this before. You know, since you were five, you're in school, you're sitting there, you're taking in information. You don't question, you're not supposed to. You sit there and you listen and that's that. And you're kind of indoctrined to that mindset and that way of thinking and taking information. So I think that's part of the issue. Well, it is, and, the, and the, the arbiter, the thing that breaks that, is science. And without mm-hmm. science, we couldn't even have a courtroom, you know, because mm-hmm. there'd be nobody, nothing that would decide any argument. Right. There's, 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 mm-hmm. no, there's no arbiter except science. And science requires that things be tested and that they be able to be, if, if they make some proclamation about it, they, then it needs to be repeated through following their path. And without yeah. science, there's no way to approach 9/11. One of the, I want to make sure that we 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 cover, we get to the you know how do you approach 9/11 compared to the people that say it's an inside job. You know, like they jump right to it's an inside job and who did it. And uh, what people don't realize is that they haven't even noticed the crime yet. They don't even know what the crime is. And the crime starts by paying attention to the top of World Trade Center 1 and 2 uh, and looking at the reports and what they said happened there compared to what actually happened. And when you, when you look at the science of what the crime was, which is how did those buildings come down? They couldn't have come down any way other than demolition. There's no other way, and that can be scientifically proven. So if, in fact, the buildings came down from demolition, World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7 specifically, uh, then the question has to be asked, how in the world could those buildings be rigged in advance? Because it takes months to rig a building for demolition. Mm-hmm. So if you ask yourself, well, how could these be, how could these be hooked up? Uh, you, you, you go, well, I don't know. And then you go to Building 7 where you've got the same kind of thing, except that it comes down different. It comes down like a classic demolition that you'd see in Las Vegas. And the first person that's asked about it is the owner. And, uh, and he, announced, he announces that um, he talked it over with the, uh, uh, the fire department, and they decided that uh, because of all the awful stuff that had happened that day, they'd just bring the building down. Well, this is on a PBS documentary. Uh, well, the problem with that is, is the same thing that's the problem with the towers. The building would have had to have been rigged months, within a, a month or two to rig it. And if that's the case, then he's allowed people to go to work in his building when it was rigged for demolition. So he was never questioned about this stuff, and he got a $7 billion, $6 billion payoff on a what was – from his point of view, a $100,000 investment. And uh, so you start, so ask, when you, if you go, well, how did the buildings come down? You go, well, Muslims would not have had access to those buildings. How would they have had access to World Trade Center 7, which had the, the CIA's second largest office, which had the New York City's emergency uh, uh, 
office, whatever it was called, Emergency Central, uh, and it was supposedly held, uh, you know, a, a huge amount of Enron documents. Uh, how, you know, that, I mean, this, this whole thing is just crazy. When, if, if we don't follow the science, and, and the science of World Trade Center 7 is, is that they're claiming that one column, there was 84, 83, or 84 columns in that building. They're saying one column. Now, if you look at a, if you put your, cross your fingers, like an X, with mm-hmm. sticking straight up. Well, take that, that finger that's going left and right and just put it on the top of your other finger. Okay, the, your, you've got your column, which is a finger pointing straight up, and you've got the, the cross beams, which are on top of that column. They're saying that the cross beams, which two of them met at that column, that they separated. And that that separation caused the, the, the part of the beam that's towards the inside of the building to cause every other connection in the building to break at exactly the same time. Because the only way that building could come down straight is if everything failed at exactly the same time. If all 83 columns didn't fail at exactly the same time, the building would have tilted to one side or the other. And I like what it said in me. I'm sorry to interrupt your train of thought there. Um, I like when it said, you know, it fell symmetrically from an asymmetric hit. That just didn't make sense either. That was there's a lot of how could yeah how could that happen? That's impossible. I mean, I've got a little pet cage out here, you know, an animal trap. uh, That's that's a rectangle and it's about three feet tall and probably a foot and a half wide, and it's made out of wire mesh. It's hollow. It's made out of wire mesh. I'm going, well, what would it take of me chopping up this thing to cause it to move at all? And it doesn't even have any central supports. And, and, you know, or in the case of the towers, they had a building inside the building. The people think, oh, it's just one big, on the World Trade Center 1 and 2, they think that the floors are just great big giant floors. No, they were like a donut. And the inside of the building was even stronger than the outside. And it was hollow. That's where the elevators were. So it was just, it served only as support for the inside of the building. People don't even know that that existed. And so when they see the building come straight down, they aren't taking into account what the world is dismantling that center building. I mean, it's so heavy with steel. You know, nothing could fall on it. I look at my little cage. I'm going, what would it take? I, I, there's nothing. I could... I could chop it. I could. I could do almost anything to it, and it wouldn't fall over. Because, right. And that's the same with the towers. They were built to be, be hold four to five times their weight. And people don't realize with the towers is that the bottom part of the towers was well, the, the, the giant columns were built like pyramids in the sense that they were the widest at the bottom and the narrowest at the top. And you know, you, well, how could the top fifteen stories? of a building that's been supported by the bottom of the building for 40 years, how could that lighter, smaller portion at the top do anything to the bottom at all, other than maybe crush one or two floors? You know, uh, Newton's laws say that, you know, for every action, there's a reaction. And what that means is that there's 14 floors crushing down. The most they could ever crush is 14 floors. I saw on YouTube, I was, you know, it struck me. The day that I saw it, I 
I knew something, you know, some people just get instincts. It didn't make sense to me. There was already variables that were put in the news that weren't adding up to me. And, you know, so I went online and I actually found other footage of planes hitting the building. And guess what? They didn't fall over. It was just like two floors. Right. You right. know, well, the Empire State Building was hit by a, a, a bomber, I think it was. Nothing happened. Right. The buildings were, uh, uh, the architects uh, are on video saying that the buildings were uh, built to accommodate for being hit by a 707. Huh. I didn't know that. Hmm. Oh, yeah. That was built into the design. So, and and you, when you think about it, it's, it, it makes sense because these were this was a building inside of a building, and so if something hits the outside shell, which was you know held up forty or forty five percent of the weight, uh, you know it would it go through that shell. But the center was these heavy, heavy girders, and it couldn't possibly have have uh, destroyed those girders. It, a plane is made out of aluminum, and it would just fold through them. Uh, the heat would have heated up something, but and, and of course the government claims that the big factor here is is that uh, that the plane hit and knocked off the fire retardant. But you know their argument is very shallow because uh, it didn't knock off the fire retardant on the 85 floors cold air conditioned floors with electricity on underneath where the plane hit, mm-hmm. and that and that's what's at question is how in the world did those bottom 85 floors get destroyed? Well, the government, get this, the government didn't even investigate that. There is nothing in any of the reports anywhere by the government that says what happened to those buildings after they started moving down. In other words, when the top part moved an inch, that's the end of their report. And their report that ends with the sentence, that uh, global collapse then ensued. And so their, their crime discussion of what in the world brought those buildings down, which should have been discussed floor by floor because they have various uh, different structures inside. You know, it was like three buildings on top of each other. So, and with staggered uh, uh, elevators and all that, uh, and the big atriums at various parts and everything, and all those things would have affected how it fell. And so a, a crime investigation would have explored what happened. You could say, okay, the building got too hot up there and, uh, and, and floor 95 uh, surrendered and allowed floor 96 up to floor 115 to crash down really hard onto floor 93 or 4 or whatever it is. And that caused a pancake situation. Well, that's what the original argument was. But NIST, to their credit, ruled that out which, of course, it couldn't possibly happen. There's just too many pieces of metal pointing in too many different directions. Plus, it was hit, like you said, asymmetrically. It was hit on one side. The damage was on that side. The weakness to the building was on that side. And there's absolutely no way on God's green earth that the building is going to collapse straight down in a symmetrical way when it's been hit asymmetrically. It can't happen. Uh, So there's just... Story, it's hard to even stay organized about it in my mind because it's just everywhere I look, there's baloney. And, uh, and, and the no, thing that's really, before all the theories, I mean, because I was kind of isolated, I didn't 
You know, I was living, you know, in a different world back then, practically. But all these questions are arising in my own mind. And then, like, why do they clear it so fast? That just bothered me. It said, so I just knew, I mean, from day one, the first, when I heard it, that this was not the way it seemed. And something yeah. wasn't adding. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, so fast they cleared it. It was the city of New York with Rudolph Giuliani. As a matter of fact, architects and engineers just put out an article today uh, addressing that very issue, and they've named the names. And uh, they're guilty of of, of, uh, of of committing a crime by getting rid, getting rid of the, the crime scene, no matter what their explanations were. And they were contacted and didn't respond. So they knew that they were they they knew that they were rushing it out. This was part of the cover up. Everybody knows sure. this thing is cover up. You know that that pays attention at all, and uh, so yeah, that is, uh, architects and engineers, to their credit, is finally on this top on this topic. Now that the lawyers, there's a lawyers committee, and that they've they've filed uh, uh, papers to create a grand jury, and they're pretty confident they're going to be able to get one, because uh, even if these Zionist lawyers, uh, who have always handled the 9/11 events in court, they've always been Zionists. They've never been anybody else. Uh, uh, even if, if this guy's a Zionist, which I don't know, uh, if he doesn't uh, allow the grand jury to be formed, uh, he can be forced to make it happen because of the way that the, that the lawyers committee has approached this thing. So we have our fingers crossed that uh, we're in, that we're going to be in court, which case, you know, uh, if we can get, if we can get the court to, uh, make a grand jury thing out of this, then all the evidence can come forward finally in front of a group of people. But it's never been allowed to become forward. Even in like the BBC, for example, in, in England, you have to, you, they have to pay every month to get the BBC. And, uh, and, and some guy over there who's a truther decided, hell with you, I'm not paying for it because you're lying about 9-11. And so they tried to get heavy with him and, and get him into court. Well, he brought a bunch of 9-11 truthers over there, uh, like Nils Herrick from Copenhagen, and, and I think he, uh, Richard Gage and some others were headed over there, uh, to, be, to testify in his court case. And once the BBC, once the courts got wind that he's gonna have, he's gonna, they're going to have to open it up for evidence, they dropped the whole thing. The guy's watching BBC for nothing to this day. So they won't go there. They'll do anything to keep it from getting into the court at this point so far. And uh, so with the Lawyers Committee, I think we've got a really good chance. We've got really smart public interest lawyers working on it. Uh, it's, it's, you know, people are getting fed up and uh, at the lack of the government's ability to even respond at all. Yeah, I think you know. we are. Everybody's getting fed up. I mean, I get more yeah, and they, yeah. And those of I us think- that know about it know everything that's happened since 9-11 is because of 9-11, because there was a coup on 9-11. The neocons, both Christian and Jewish Zionists, all, every one of them, wrote a, a paper, the Project for the New American Century, where they say that they can't implement their plans, which is weapons in outer space and, and uh, uh, becoming a hegemon and guaranteeing that the U.S. is always the world power and nobody else can challenge them and all that. Well, uh, they can't uh, – uh, see, I just had one of those things that you had uh, where my mind just went blip. <laughs> blip. <laughs> blip. But, uh, yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's the villain. The villains always make me do that. It's just so they're so disgusting. And uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, the the this thing was was architected, and uh, it, we're paying for it to this day. All these, you know, twenty million people or ten million people are dead because of lies. They're Muslims. They're killed. They're murdered because of these lies, and uh, they had nothing to do with it at all. I mean, it's it's doubtful there was any Muslims on the plane. There's no record of any Muslims on the planes. There's no, there's no, you know, they keep a record of names, and there's no Muslims on any of these planes. Uh, and yet they immediately got blamed. Well, who, you know, uh, there was no challenge. Uh, it was Osama bin Laden did it. Uh, Osama bin Laden said he didn't do it. Uh, Afghanistan said, if, if you show us some evidence that Osama bin Laden did it, and we'll give him to you. And instead of doing that, we just bombed him. So and we didn't and we didn't respond. We just bombed them. Uh, the, the so you know we have to come to the conclusion that that you know if if if, 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 if the people that are at the at every juncture that had control of this situation from the beginning to current times are I hate to say it but they're all Zionists. Mm-hmm. The, uh, if you start with uh, Larry Silverstein and Frank Lloyd, the people that owned the towers and Building 7, heavy-duty Zionists. Silverstein spoke weekly with Netanyahu every Sunday before 9-11. Uh, who, hand, who handled the 9-11 commission? Philip Zelikow, a major Zionist, who, was, who, was, who had written a paper on on uh, uh, manipulation of the masses uh, and was also Condoleezza Rice's buddy. They, they did stuff together, wrote stuff together. And he, he was in charge of the 9-11 Commission. He wrote it ahead of time. He wrote the outline ahead of time, put it in a safe. Sorry, it was myself. <laughs> yeah, and, and put it in a safe. And then they used that outline to do the 9-11 Commission. And so, you know, that's predetermining the outcome. And, uh, and then you've got Michael Chertoff, who, who personally released all the Israelis that had been captured on that day. They were, there was a truck with, full of explosives. There were the dancing Israelis who were videotaping the towers. Uh, there was something like 70 Israelis who were, ca- who were arrested that day. And Michael Chertoff, whose mother was a Mossad agent, released them all. And he formed, he's the one who formed the, the Patriot thing and uh, the trouble we've been having with that that's all michael chertoff there's there's zionists at every corner and you no matter where you look there's zionists and or christians you know, they're either jewish or christian zionists you know they're not just jewish and, and it doesn't have anything to do with judaism and it doesn't have anything to do with Christ, christianity it has to do with psychotic warmongers right you, put you, know? that you spoke very well because some people just get on and they're just on a you know, anti-Semitic ramp, but you're, and I always say, you know, I understand, you know, when we discuss Zion, you know, Zionism, you know, but I don't want to say, oh, the Jewish, you know, I just somehow, it just comes out so hateful sometimes, and, and we know that, you know, there's Christian Zionists as well, and, uh, but just using the term Zionist is a lot more pal- palatable to people. Well, and it's the truth. I mean, you got, you got Vice President Biden announcing on camera that he's a Zionist. 
he's always wanted to be one, and he considers himself a Zionist. Yeah. Well, these people don't know what that means. They, they're blinded. They're, they absolutely are, are terrified of religion, all of these people. They don't know enough. They've been busy hoodwinking people to be in politics. They've never studied theosophy. They've never studied you know, their relationship with their version of God. And they're all, they roll over on this, on this Holy Land thing. Mm-hmm. It, it absolutely baffles them. They, they just go along with it because they don't know what to do because you've got such a record of, of Jews claiming, you know, ties to that area through the Bible. <clears throat> and, of course, it's all lies. But uh, the Hebrews were there, but there weren't any Jews. And uh, I don't think Jew, the term Jew was even used much until the last 60 years or so. Yeah, I think it was always Hebrews. But uh, at any rate, it's, uh, it's not Jewish people. It's Zionists who are, who are basically like Norman Finkelstein says, that they're, they're destroying the, the Jewish religion. That yeah. Jews are the ones who suffer the most from this. Mm-hmm. Because they're being marginalized and being labeled as being like Zionists. And Zionists are guilty of two things. I mean, the, the thing that separates them from regular Jews in Israel is that they're in favor of owning land, which goes against the grain with, uh, you know, Jewish people who, who respond as if they're part of a diaspora. And, uh, and they're also told in traditional Judaism that, that they, whatever country they're in, they're to, to follow the leadership of that country, not, you know, Israel or something like that. That, that you know, so anyway, the whole thing is nuts. The Jews are innocent except for the ones that aren't. Yes. And uh, uh, Muslims are innocent except for the ones that have made, been made psychotic by our, by our efforts at attacking Afghanistan illegally and destroying people there, attacking Iraq totally illegally, destroying that entire country, attacking Somalia and destroying it, attacking Libya and destroying it, and now attacking Syria when we're not even when we're asked to leave, and we're still attacking them. Uh, all, you know, none of this stuff serves Americans. What in the world? Why would what would we gain from the, all this? You know, the only people that gain from this are, are, are expansionist Zionists who want land and want a standing army. Those are the two things I wanted to say. The, the two things that separate them from normal Jews is that they want ownership of land and they want a standing army. And both of those things go against all the ancient Jewish teachings. And that's why you've got these, these uh, Hasidic Jews uh, out there standing in the street with signs and everything saying Zionism it doesn't represent us, you know, get rid of it. Because it doesn't represent them. It's a political movement. It's not, a, it's not religious at all. And, but people tie it to religion somehow. Uh, even Jews are confused on the subject, you know, whether Zionism is, you know, I mean, I had a girlfriend once and I told her I was, sick of Zionism and broke her heart because she was innocently believed that the only way the Jewish people were going to have a homeland is if, if Zionism was successful because it was an active arm of making that happen. But she had no idea the lengths they were going to to make it happen, how many people they were going to kill and, and, and kick out of the country to make it happen. 
and all that. So the, the poor Jewish people have been having, we're, I've spent the last 30, 40 years thinking about this and being absolutely irate at how Palestinians never get their day in court. They never, if there's ever a break anywhere, it never breaks in favor of the Palestinians since, since the late middle 70s when I started paying attention to it. It always falls down that Israel wins and Palestinians have to give up even more. And I just can't stand that, you know? So that's why I was afraid to get off, get off the subject. I want to talk about 9-11, but this thing, you know, irks me so much that I also, I'm doing a new documentary on this subject. And uh, the reason is, is that I, I went in and downloaded television on the day of 9-11 from ABC, CBS, NBC, and BBC. And I started watching it. And I realized, here it is. Here it is. Every Zionist in the world is on television on the day of 9-11 telling America what they need to do next. There's nobody else, nobody from any other country in the world coming on BBC or any other channel saying what the United States is supposed to do next. Only Ehud Barak and... uh, and then his American uh, compatriots uh, are just, it's a barrage of now we've got to, we can't think of it as a, as an individual act. We have to think, we have to expand it and think of it as what country is harboring these. And we have to go after those countries. And it was all expansionism. It was all about taking what was a crime and should have been handled by international police and making it a war and, and has to be a war. And, of course, the reason for that is, is that if they make it a war, then nobody investigates anything, and Congress just turns over money. And that's what they wanted, exactly what they wanted, and that's what they got. There was no investigation. The, uh, you know, get back to the investigations, the 9-11 Commission. The 9-11 Commission what, what had it, was completely controlled by a, an act that had been passed. I've got it somewhere here. Uh, before anything happened, designating NIST to be the, the party that investigates all aspects of the uh, tower collapses. They claim that. But then they, they, moderate, they modify it by saying basically their only task that was to find out what happened, what, what happened to those buildings. So it wasn't solving the crime. It was try to finding out what happened to those buildings, which means that it was a building safety report. And if you and if you read the 9/11 Commission report, you find that there is anytime there's an if there's an opportunity to go off on a crime search of who maybe somebody committed a crime, they completely ignore that. It's always been it's always back to building safety report. And, and, and the reason, of course, is that they didn't have any funding for anything else. That, that was what that, that the, uh, I forget the number of the, of the uh, law, but it, it, it limited their funding to only going after building safety. Of course, they presented to the public like they were the ultimate commission that went after everything. And of course, they didn't go after any of, of it there. Anything that has to do with what was going on behind the scenes other than building safety was created by the FBI. I called the FBI. And I asked the public relations guy, I said, how come there's no crime report on the, on the buildings coming down? And right. he, said, he said, the FBI has conducted the most expensive, most ex- not expensive, but extensive 
uh, you know, examination of, in, it, in its history, but he had no answer. He said, the, the, where you find the information is in the 9-11 report. So the 9-11 report just took what the FBI gave him. If you look at it, it's clear that the FBI gave him what the CIA told the FBI to give him. There's no accountability anywhere for anything. The, yeah. uh, they never did do a crime investigation, but they claim they did. Uh, the only conclusion they came with, up with was that Osama bin Laden, uh, you know, started the whole thing. And uh, I think pretty much that ended because they, they go, well, and everybody else was killed in the plane crashes, so there's nothing else to do. Right. Anyway, it's just, uh, it's just an endless uh, Gordian knot of, uh, of madness uh, because it was, this, is, this is a giant team effort. Let's see, what is, I've got a quote here uh, from uh, uh, Lynn Margulis, who's in, in both of my documentaries. Uh, Lynn Margulis was, uh, she received the, uh, uh, she interna- was internationally known. She received the National Medal of Science from Clinton. She was invited uh, to be a member of the Da Vinci Society, which is the society of the smartest people in the world and all that stuff. And, and she uh, came out with this statement. The 9-11 tragedy is the most... Oh, and also she was uh, Carl Sagan's first wife. Uh, The 9-11 tragedy is the most successful and most perverse publicity stunt in the history of public relations. Lynn Margulis. And and she talks about how they didn't use science to do their reports at all. She calls, I don't know what you call it, she says propaganda or something like that. And... uh, you know, so, so, and here's a very serious woman who was taken serious all over the world. But you listen to the, uh, the naysayers and they go, oh, her. Oh, she's a biologist. She doesn't know anything. Without taking the time to even listen to what she has to say or to look at whatever evidence or discussion she's, she can present to them. No, she, they just marginalize them right away. Yeah. Oh, well, what does she know? I mean, as if they knew anything, you know. <laughs> Right. So, uh, uh, I think anyway. that's going to be a, a very, you know, watching those documentaries, it just resonates as truth. I, it's so obvious. Uh, everything that, every point that was made um, would make, if, if a person would at least open their minds to the idea that maybe their what they think or their perception uh, might need to be readjusted, you know, and so. If, when just watching it, it just it's so compelling. But every bit of it, it, it's just like that's correct. That's correct. You know, just it gets you to gets you thinking. It just validates every every concern that I already had. But it just makes me wonder why, you know, people won't watch it. I actually sent um, a similar documentary years ago to my aunt and uncle, and after watching it, they never wanted to talk about 9/11 again. They didn't want to believe it initially, and then they just said, I don't want to talk about it, you know, but they well, never brought it again. Yeah, that's what the psychology documentary is about. You know, you got David Ray Griffin set establishing the, the, the foundation for how to approach this thing, you know, by immediately defining religion as the search for the ultimate truth. And, mm-hmm. you know, so therefore bringing all religions together at that point. And, uh, and then going on to, you know, point out that, 
you know, American exceptionalism is, is, is part of the problem because uh, people, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, something about uh, if you're, uh, what the heck was the thing? It was, uh, it had, it was, uh, whoops, I'm getting a call here. And let's see, send a voicemail. Okay. Uh, no, it's something. Uh, oh, doggone it, boy! I'm telling you, I'm, te- I'm just like you. <laughs> Maybe worse. <laughs> I don't uh, think so. <laughs> it uh, it kind of scatters. Uh, doggone it! I had yeah, a- I, I oh. saw that he's talking about. Um, is it patriotism? How they're how all of a sudden America is it's like its own religion, and that's one of the biggest problems we have. Well, it is. And how do people, you know, how to break down people's thought patterns so that they can find the truth? And, you know, Fran Schur, one of the psychologists, you know, tackles that pretty well by giving people, sure, you can believe this and you can believe this, but, but what happened, what would it, what does it cost you to take a look at this? You know, the possibility that it was a false flag, you know, that it was, a, that it was created by people for political results, not, not for the actual crime itself. Right. And, uh, you know, people don't want to go there. But uh, this American exceptionalism thing, uh, which is being used against us by our own leaders, is an illusion. It doesn't, it's, it's, oh, that was the idea was that uh, that, America is the greatest country in the world just because we were born in it. You know, I mean, the, the grounds that, that, we, that, that we base our American exceptionalism on is nothing more than that. It's nothing more than th- that it's the right one because we're here. I mean, if, uh, that's what it looks like to me. So uh, if, you know, if that's the basis for people deciding things one way or another, uh, it's pretty shallow. Are you still there? You are gone. Sorry, I'm still here. Sorry, I had you oh, on you mute. Okay. Oh, okay. So you didn't hear my background noise. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, as you can tell, I'm not that organized. So uh, if you can uh, take all this and, and get through <laughs> okay. your difficulties well, there and uh, approach the two of us between the two of us, you know, nor- normally I'm really good at creating like an outline and following it, but I can't even get my sentences together some days. But it's it's really just today. I kind of felt it earlier. My thinking, when I was trying to reflect, my thoughts were muddled, and so I was afraid of that. I was like, oh, no, I hope it's not. And I thought, well, maybe I'll snap out of it by the time the interview comes, and I'll be okay. And um, But it's okay. Tomorrow we'll do take two, and I bet you it'll, I'm sure it'll be great. And uh, be you have fine. such great information. I mean, it's everyone needs to view it, and everyone needs to reconsider, the, you know, the evidence. I need to, I know, like you said, and, and like the documentary said, I should say, you know, uh, sometimes you have to revisit it. As painful and traumatic as it was, in order because when someone's emotional, they're not perceiving information correctly. Just like you said, you know, uh, you know, when you talked about you know certain groups of people and they upset you, it, it clouds your thinking. It's the same thing when we're witnessing a tragedy and we're being traumatized by what happened around the events of 9/11. So you almost need to come back to it with a little bit more. Um, with a little less emotion, because of course it's going to be painful, but you do need to revisit it so you can actually use your critical thinking. Because it's been you're 17 emotion. years. 17 yeah. years that we can't, we can't do it, we can't respond cogently emotionally. 
You know, right. I mean, we got we've got to be able to put our emotions on hold for a minute and recognize that that there's a huge amount of people that that are saying something that seems impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, and open up our eyes and our heart to going. Well, at least I got to listen to it. I can't just, uh, you know, I have enough self respect that I can't keep just telling myself the same story and and blaming other people uh, as being idiots. Uh, which is, believe me, I get a lot of that on some of my stuff I post. <laughs> yeah. Well, what but, part uh, of L.A. do you live in? Um, I was just curious. Uh, I'm in Pasadena. You... Oh, Pasadena. I love Pasadena. There's I used to be in Los Feliz. Farm. I'm sorry? Pardon? I used to be in Los Feliz. I had a house there. I sold it, and uh, and I've been renting ever since, and I'm renting now in uh, in Pasadena. And yeah. uh, up up by the mountains, it's it's nice, you know. It's nothing Both fancy, but it's but it's comfortable. Yeah. And there's there it's it's just char- a char- those are both charming places, and I love the style of homes. And there is just something about both those towns, and they're similar to me. You know, I know they're fairly close in proximity, but um, yeah, I like it there as well. I had many friends and uh, that lived out in Pasadena and. They had family out there, and it was just better than being, you know, too close to town to being in the city. My husband was raised in Malibu, um, you know, and that's a really lovely place. That's a nice place well, to grow up. Well, it's really lovely to try and get in and out of it. Yeah, exactly. And then there's so much money there that it doesn't – there was a big issue growing up and going to the schools. I mean, they went to private schools as well. But when you have kids with families that have so much money, you know, drug abuse is so common and so prevalent, and it was very sad to see that, as well as, you know, so many of these kids in, in Malibu, there was so, I mean, one out of 20 kids of these, like, rich and famous people ended up dead, you know, either, usually through, you know, either car accidents, drug abuse, or whatever the case may be, you know, Malibu has this really dark um, underbelly because of all the money and the drugs, you know, it's, it's really sad, you know, because my, um, my husband's dad was in the Eagles, and so he grew up in that kind of world. You know, there was just... He was in the band, last... the Eagles? Yeah, the band, the Eagles, yeah. What's his name? Don Felder. Oh, he's Don Felder, okay. Yeah, he was the lead guitarist. Um, he's not the nicest member of the band, but you know, he's very gifted. He's a very talented man, and he's my father-in-law, so I'm respectful of him. But, um, you know, that band... In, you know, that band has had their problems over the years. But I think they're even touring again. And I think the last tour, they said they would never, absolutely never tour together again. And here they are. I think they're going on tour again. <laughs> I well, don't know I what think, it is. Yeah, I think the death of... Uh, and, of yeah. Uh, that was uh, horrible. Did a, did a lot to, uh, you know, change their... Change their Dynamic. Their, their, I, I knew uh, only one of the Eagles. I knew Timothy B. Schmidt. Yeah. But, uh, uh, he, I, I knew him for a short period of time and when he was getting married. And I knew his wife. And uh, he was a great guy. Oh, I, have nothing but, I have nothing yeah. but the best things to say about Timothy B. Schmidt. He's a, he's a prince. That's good to hear. Because, I mean, he also probably has the least... So there's so many strong egos and personalities within the band, um, especially between like, well, Glenn. It was Glenn, Don Henley, and Don Felder. The three of those just really butt heads. They were very opinionated, 
um, central figure, and they kind of wanted all three. Although Glenn and John Henley usually agreed on, you know, um, on they, they were they stood together, you know, against Don Felder quite often. So. Oh, a, well, and Joe Walsh has been with him a long time, but I, I get the feeling Joe Walsh is a, is a good old boy. He is a good he, old boy, and he was just kind of the party guy, and I think he's sober now. And but he's a very likable person, you know. Yeah, and Don I said that it, out of all the bandmates, because he's not in the band at all um, now, um, he missed Joe Walsh. He just you know, but of course because he was guitar too, so they had a closer relationship. Oh, he isn't so. in the band anymore. No, oh, oh, the last I think he hasn't toured with them in a long time now. Um, they had a falling out over some, you know, uh, uh, royalties, and that was that. You know, Don Felder found out um, that some money was being kept from him somehow. I don't know something to do with the the money that was taken in through some of the concerts and some various other aspects, but. Their argument is that Don was asking for royalties uh, that didn't belong to him that, or publishing that shouldn't have been his. And so there's just this horrible, horrible uh, tension between the three of them or between the two of them now. I see that Joe Walsh and Tim Schmidt left the band in 2016. They both started in 1994 and left the band in 2016. Uh, so... You know, something must have happened. That must have been when, uh, who was it? Was it uh, Don Henley that died? It was Glenn Fry. Oh, it was Glenn Fry. Yeah, that must have been yeah. when he died. There must have been yeah. that big change then. Yeah, it did. But, you know, I think they're getting it together. Minus Don, um, my father-in-law. I don't think he's been invited back. So. Yeah, they got a big catalog of hits. They'll be fine. Yeah, I mean they were like the the most successful band, not a not solo artist in history. Um, so they did pretty well for themselves, but you know their battles have been very public. So you know it's you know, and then even like you know being married to um, you know John had been married to Cody's mom. You know they had a very successful marriage, especially in the music business, and that kind of. Um, when I met Cody, that started to fall apart as well. It's very tough. You know, these guys kind of get this God complex. They've got women throwing themselves at them. They have a lot of opportunity. They're traveling. So it is very difficult to have a successful um, marriage, I think, in that business. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you've yeah. got to have a there, – there has to be a woman, assuming that it's the man that's traveling, uh, there has to be a woman mm-hmm. that uh, is willing to look the other way. Exactly. And hang in there. And she wants the long haul, not the. She doesn't care about the short term thing. I, I don't know what kind of woman that is. It used to be thought of as a hippie woman. Uh, you, know. <laughs> you know, and Susan uh, was kind of a hippie. Funny enough, she was like a into yoga, and she's very free spirited, and she's a yeah. lovely woman. She compliments his stubborn, narcissistic kind of domineering personality. She can tolerate him really well, but it just got to the point where she couldn't. You know. Um, he, you know, because as nice and kind and easy as a person can be, they can. There's a point where they just can't. You know, it was not just him, his uh, indiscretion. It was just his personality too was getting too much. <laughs> oh, that's that's worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And my husband, he was um, touring with Don on his solo projects and doing things. But then we started fostering kids, and I'm like, Cody, you can't be gone all the time. You know, we're adopting a bunch of kids, and you need to be home, and you need to get a real job. And so he ended up, you know, 
getting a quote-unquote real job, and he actually really likes it. He likes the structure. He likes having structure, which he's mm-hmm. not used to. You know, and he does really well, and he's such a nice, personable person that everybody loves him. And so, yeah, it's interesting that he was able to maintain a, you know, a uh, kind of a daytime job, so to speak. And, you know, he does really well. He's a super, super So is that the reason you left Bend and, and moved to Portland to increase his chances of getting employment? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very insightful. Well, Good of you. Sense. Yep, because we were in Bend and it, there was nothing there. You just really, there's not much work opportunity. Him and his Correct. brother actually tried to open up a gaming lounge, but it didn't do that well. I mean, it didn't do well at all, actually. And there was also a financial, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The market had kind of crashed and there just wasn't a lot, there just wasn't a lot of opportunity up there. Well, um, it used to be that computers were, were uh, expensive. And that uh, younger people couldn't afford to have their own computers, so they'd go to these gaming places and uh, or, or, or places where they could rent time on a computer, that kind of thing. And, uh, boy, that went away fast. Computers got too cheap. Yeah, that was my complaint. Like, when they started that business, I'm like, they can just go buy an Xbox themselves. And he goes, yeah, but you can be there with your buddies and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, they can talk to their buddies online, you know. And so, I don't know, I had my reservations. I didn't think it was a great idea, and I ended up being right. But, you know, just because I looked at it, like, if I'm a parent, you know, and I'm going to go take my kid down and they're going to charge me $15, $20 an hour, you know, I could buy an Xbox, you know, within a week. So, um, it's hard, it's hard to see ahead, you know. It's hard to see. I, I remember one point I was going. I, I wanted to have a laser disc store. <laughs> yeah. I was because I was buying laser discs, and I just wanted the high quality. You know, the, the breakthrough for laser disc was from VHS was is that you got a higher quality soundtrack, and you got for the first time widescreen films. Because right. on VHS they never showed them in widescreen. So I was going. Well, this is great. It's better widescreen it's a real honorable approach to showing a good movie and i thought boy i'd have a laser disc store well <laughs> i saw the laser disc store i was going to just absolutely implode and because yeah. uh, the market disappeared entirely and uh and then dvd with dvds and now the dvds are disappearing entirely for blu-ray which is only hanging on uh as digital Downloads become what everybody downloads. does, oh. or not even downloads, just streaming. I mean, they they want to get it to the point to where nobody owns anything, and any if you want to watch anything, you have to rent it. Yeah, it feels that way. I was thinking that just the other day. I'm like, gosh, I feel like nothing. Like when I was a kid, the most magical thing you talked about your love of music and movies when you were a child. I also was the same way. When I go to a movie, I like am in the movie. I feel every aspect of it you know i get so emotionally involved in a film which is why i can't watch horrors because it's just too real to me it's just my sensory my sensory perception i'm very sensitive and so and then with music you know to get back to my point is you know you bought a record you looked at it you held it you know there was you know the cover and all the lyrics and artwork and it was just really precious you went and paid for it it was yours it wasn't flooded you know there wasn't you know I don't know. Nowadays, it's just completely different mindset. Everything's disposable too. Nothing's yours, and everything's disposable. And no one's really making money. It seems. I mean, someone's making money, but I feel like the artists are not. And so, um, yeah. So that you know, that record was such a precious thing. And so I just I was thinking about the same thing the other day. You know, just digital downloads. I do iHeartRadio, and the artist gets a few cents a play. 
And, um, you know, I mean, the music business is kind of nefarious in itself. That's a whole well, it other used to be. It used to be that, you know, back in the 70s, of course, you were a youngster, but uh, back in the 70s, uh, people bought albums. They didn't, they weren't buying singles. Uh, so there was a, about a 10-year period where musicians tried to make albums that were killer from beginning to end. Yeah. Killer, no filler. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was the case. I mean, so I was in a, I, I was with my buddy, Michael, we would go get a new album and sit down and just listen to it <laughs> from beginning to end. Yeah, well, it was and, for us, uh, too. You know, in the 70s and 80s, you still, you bought that album, you shared it with your friend, and you actually couldn't even, like, rip it, you know, of course. I mean, I think in the 80s, you had the cassette tapes, and you could play the record, and you could record it on a cassette, but it's not like now. I mean, there's just no way to really, truly to protect anything. And you so could send everything and anything. It's just bizarre to me. Yeah, we couldn't so. do anything in the 70s. We couldn't copy anything. I and, know. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's, uh, we couldn't take it with us. But, uh, you know, when Steve Jobs came up with the idea of having a little digital player, uh, that was a great idea. But something, you know, it wasn't just him, but the whole system of doing that robbed music of its ability to – it was just about to uh, go past, you know, uh, I mean, because records sounded great. And whereas DVDs didn't, uh, uh, excuse me, but uh, uh, the, the records sounded great. The cassette tapes didn't sound as, they sounded better in some cases, but you always had that tape hiss. But it, I didn't like it. I did not like a cassette tape for numerous reasons. And it didn't feel special either. It was just this, I but don't records know. records got scratched, like... and that was the problem with them, you know. Right. But, uh, but was, once they got it uh, digital... They, they, yeah. Somebody determined that they didn't have to, that it was a matter of just capturing the song, not worrying about the quality. And so, you know, they, they, they started making everything happen at, at, uh, at 44.1 sample rate, 44,100 times a second, it samples the sound. And that's the, that's the, uh, the uh, um, DVD standard. I mean, not DVD, but... Uh, uh, C3? Uh, MP3? CD, CD. CD. The CDs, CD okay, standard. yeah. Yeah, because they're obsolete now, practically. No. Uh, but the, MP3, the MP3 sounds horrible to me. Yeah, they do. Even the highest quality MP3 isn't as good as a CD. I and, agree but, wholeheartedly. I still have my CDs in my car, and that is my point. And I'm like, yeah, it gets too digital. There's too digi- There's just something. I don't like MP3. Well, you lose, you, you lose all the low end. Yes, and I love low end. <laughs> yeah, the low end waves, the low end yeah. waves take up more space, so they compress mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that, but you do. Okay, makes sense. That makes perfect yeah. sense. All I knew is that the quality wasn't there, and I could hear it, and I complain about it constantly. But I didn't realize that the low end takes up more space. Okay, that makes But now sense. there's a there's there's a site out there, HD Tracks, that is it is releasing popular album at 192 kilobytes a second, which is, well, what, what would that be? That would be four times the quality of a, of a CD. And, uh, and it's much better quality than a record even because it's huh. crystal clear. It sounds just like the masters. So I've been, you know, I've replaced a few of my favorite albums uh, with these 
HD downloads, and they're fantastic. They're geez, they just sound so clear. Uh, Where so you much get better. Where's that? Called HD tracks. Huh. I have to. I'm losing. Actually, I'm losing some of your 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 uh, your words, so I can't really hear. Not that I'm not perceiving them. It's just in the sound, and my phone isn't. Well, I'm up very... against the mountains, so it, it sometimes oh, doesn't go. Okay. Maybe you can send me a link because that would, yeah, because I'm very disappointed. I just feel like there's no quality left. That's what I feel like. Just type, yeah, just type in HD tracks. That'll, okay. that'll take you right well. there. Yeah, it's, uh, they run, they're charging like between 15 and $30 an album, depending, you know, uh, on how special it is. Uh, and they have sales and stuff. But, I mean, I've replaced like Cat Stevens and, and uh, uh-huh. uh, Led Zeppelin and, and uh, you know, uh, for me, Electric Light Orchestra and a few other bands. I love DLO. Oh my gosh, in the '70s, and I I just love DLO. You know, I think they actually yeah. did a tour not too long ago. So yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, uh, Jeff Lynne is is one of my favorite musicians in the world, and uh, you know he easily could have replaced John Lennon. Uh, mm-hmm. Stepped right, he could have stepped right into his shoes, and they could have kept going. Uh, yeah. You know, and he was the producer of the but Traveling it, Wilburys, and and. Uh, you know, he's just a genius. And he wrote yeah. all the yellow I, music. And oh, on, yeah. the, on the records, he performed most of the, uh, the, of the uh, instruments, too. It's, he only used, uh, he, yeah, he only used musicians when he went on the road. Ah. Except for a couple people. He had a piano player that he kept. And, right. uh, and, and he, originally, he had cellos and violins. And uh, he doesn't really come out with that approach anymore. But uh, he kept those people. But uh, yeah, he's he's a one man band. He's incredible. But wow. so yeah, I replaced I replaced a bunch of their I I stage managed for them once back in the middle seventies, and uh, uh, you know was around them for almost a month, and uh, I just and plus I already was a big fan. So right. uh, you know how we how we go back to moments where we had brushes with greatness and we kind of cherish those moments. So yeah. PLO has multiple meanings for me but mm-hmm. uh at any rate yeah, i'm a big i, I love lennon higher oh, quality the better no. pardon you love I, I was lennon i i appreciated more as i got older you know i just really i don't know i liked bands that spoke out you know politically interestingly enough you know and i really appreciate well, what you're doing now <laughs> <That's> <laughs> know, exactly you know, it's like, you know, but I did love, I did like Yellow a lot. I was young. I didn't think too much. I just liked it. You know, I'd just sit there in front. My friend had a jukebox, and she had that, that record was in there, and it would play, and I would just sit in front of there and just listen to it. Just, that was my, one of my favorites. So. The best, they wrote the, he, he writes the best pop songs. You know, they're, they're pop. I give him that, but they're, you know, it's not classical music, but uh, they're really great. Yeah, they really are. Uh, I, I don't know. I, normally, when it comes to music, I can speak on that topic. But yeah, I, there's words that I can use to describe it. But um, yeah, it's just such full music. It's so it's got the highs and the lows, and it's just very rich music. You know, it really it's is. It's very Beatlesque. Very Beatlesque. Huh. I mean, even even uh, John Lennon said that. He says, "Oh, you." Uh, he says, "I love yellow. They're just like us." You know something like that. It wasn't an exact quote, but basically that. I mean, he was his, he supported them. And yeah. uh he felt like he felt like Jeff Lynn was, you know, the man. Yeah. And He's underrated. I, he didn't get the recognition I well, they were big, but not him in particular. 
so I didn't even know so much. Well, people don't. Yeah, yeah, people don't know that what what a one man band he was and and has been. Uh, he's just one of the few that in the in the world, you know, that's ever been that. Uh, there isn't anybody I think that's written as many great tunes as him, and huh. played him himself. <laughs> so, you know, I've got what I've my, got my producer, my the station manager, owner, I should say. He's like because he knows my music connections and my passion for music. He's like, we should do like a music show because he knows a lot of musicians. He grew up around Woodstock and had in, you know his members and uh, his family members have been in bands. Usually, it's hired hands or hired players, and so he really wants me to do that. But I need to heal well, a little be, bit. That would yeah. be fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people. No. I mean, I'm sure. It would be very interesting for people. Yeah, and plus, you know, there are people who, you know, there's musicians who have a lot of opinions about politics, too. So he's going to try to integrate that into it, you know, so it wasn't just a complete, you know, uh, you know, uh, diversion from what I do. So, but, yeah, you know, uh, John Lennon influenced me as well. You know, he got me thinking, as a very young girl, you know, um, what he said mattered to me, and and his political stance, and you know, and even I know you're probably probably not a fan of you too. I remember being really young and listening to him, and it mattered to me what he had to say uh, about Africa well, uh, and cared a lot. Yeah, I, I I I'm not against you too. It's they're they're. I mean, I I remember seeing a couple of their concerts and actually really really liking them. But that was back before Joshua Tree. That was in the early days when they were very been, political. Yeah. 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 Very that. political. And I like that. And then they met uh, Steve Lillywhite was the producer in England that did Joshua Tree, and that just took him to a whole new height. Yeah, yeah. But Very I started drifting. For some reason, I, you know, the sound didn't, the, the, the jangling dr- guitar and all that, it kind of, I got tired of it for some reason. But, uh, boy, in view of what's popular now, uh, their stuff is still brilliant. <laughs> I mean, all the hip-hop and rap that I just can't stand, that, that, that album uh, that just got the, what did it get the Pulitzer Prize or something? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. That's something I'm not aware of. Big rap artist just won a Pulitzer Prize for his new album. Oh, um, I, I do tried... not pay attention to the music scene these days, no. I mean, my children talk like thugs, and they're so influenced by it, and I'm like, no, 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 we're not going to talk like that. I mean, it actually drives me crazy. And I feel like, you know, my parents, well, my parents were pretty cool. They'd let me play music loud, and, you know, I really liked loud, you know, as a teenager, and I was always attached to listening to music since I was a little kid, so they were actually, you know, but they probably appreciate, I like Fleetwood Mac, I like Stevie Nicks, I liked... You know, almost folky too. I liked bread. I don't know if you remember bread. You know, because I was sure I do. Yeah, I they loved had a bread. Good, they had a big hit. They had a great hit. They did. <laughs> they had a lot of them. They were just sweet. Yeah. Just very, very sweet. Oh, the guy and that so, won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. Is I'm Kendrick sorry. Lamar. The guy that won the Pulitzer Prize for his new uh-huh. album. Far. Yeah, I've heard his name. Listen to Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. I have to listen to him because I have a hard time believing that any of these bands will. I don't know. I just. Uh, I don't know. I can't listen to it. And she'll just be having it, it really, really loud. And But even though, like, you know, again, it's, I, you would think rap would have a lot of that low end in the bass, but I'm not, I don't know if it's what she's listening to because it doesn't come through, not in a quality way. I'm like, well, at least hip-hop has a lot of low end, but it's not quality. I don't know. And it, but she's listening to wow. iHeart Radio, YouTube, and so, yeah. Oh, I just can't stand it. I mean, to me, 
uh, it just doesn't go anywhere. I mean, I love melody. I love melody. Me and, too. And these, none of this, this stuff has any melody. Mm-hmm. Melody's Agreed. Point. Good point. Yes, I like melody as well. And yeah, I thought, well, maybe, uh, maybe it's the loss. I couldn't figure out what it was because I'm analyzing everything all the time. And I'm like, maybe it's the lack of true instruments because they've kind of gone back to a lot of, uh, oh, come on, I know the word, um, sampled music and, you know, keyboard, yes. like just not authentic. We've lost authentic instruments. So I thought maybe that was it. They don't even really use guitars much anymore. I mean, you very, you know, can't even tell you the last time I ever heard a guitar solo. Um, and then true drums, you know, I just, I thought maybe that was the problem, why I was just lost my interest in music, you know, altogether. No music, so. they have no melody, that's why. No yeah. melody, you're right, that is what it is. All right, Charles, well, I'm going to uh, get ready for my daughter's coming home here any minute. And i um, going to take care of some things. And hopefully you probably heard my – once I realized that we were going to do it again, I let my dog, and I'm like, he's going to be very aware of all the sounds. <laughs> my dog, I have this uh, foster dog uh, who we love. She's a bulldog, and uh, she came in and was just snoring so loud. So good thing is tomorrow I'll have one of a – I'll have another foster kid who came back. I like to foster. And I have a foster kid who is with us who uh, is autistic, and he was with us years ago. And – that was the one, you know, you're taking kids and you hope that they're going to learn or they're going to change and they're going to know love and stability and security. And, you know, and sometimes it doesn't work out. We've adopted some kids that with all the best intentions and all the wisdom in the world and, and, and trying to teach them and speak with them and show them and be consistent with love, you know, there's genetic components that are there. And there's also those, you know, the environment, their young environment. By the time they're two, kids are pretty wired. And so I've seen a lot of kids, you know, not a lot, but a couple of them, once, you know, they turned 18 and they went off and they, you know, they have this genetic predisposition to addiction and, you know, one kid's in jail and the other one has just kind of disappeared. And it's really sad when that happens. But this particular kid, I saw a lot of change. You know, his mother was mentally unstable and he was 12 when we got him. And he, I'll never forget that night, he was like five foot ten, and this kid comes over and he had a pacifier and he was wearing a onesie and he was 12. And I just couldn't, I didn't understand what was going on. But my point is, we saw so much growth and change, even though he was autistic and he had, like, all abs. They just kept pushing him. And, you know, in Oregon, they just keep sticking him. They just keep having him going through instead of keeping him back and kind of, you know, working with him on the grade level that they're at. And so he just been failing, failing, failing. And then, you know, one thing about autistic kids, they have some geniuses, these little hidden geniuses in brilliance within them that you just have to find. And, you know, all of a sudden we found it and he started making straight A's and he was amazing, uh-huh. amazing at math. I mean, you know, he does math better than any of us, all of us combined. So anyway, so he came back and, yeah, he's staying with us a little bit longer. And But the problem is he went back to his biological dad who continued to coddle him and treat him like a baby. So in some ways he still, he kind of has stopped his growth once he left our home. So now we're trying to get him to be interested in getting, he's 19 now, so we're trying to get him to, you know, look, look looking for a job and, and some other things that he needed to work on a little bit. So I'm enjoying having him around. He's a beautiful kiddo, and I'm really proud of him. Wow, you've got a lot of energy, Ellen. 
Well, not really. <laughs> you know what? I have a lot of determination. <laughs> bringing in family members, and taking them on. Sorry? You know, bringing in people and taking them on from scratch is is uh, just over, overwhelming. Uh, the amount of thought you have to put into something like that. Yeah, it's a lot of thought, and um, but you know, it comes really. You know, I've always, you know, I think some of the stuff people are just wired a certain way. When I was little. I'd find, like, birds that fell out of their nest. I'd bring them in, or cats, like, stray cats. I've always been like that, just taking yeah. things that damaged or injured and needed help and needed love. And, you know, unfortunately, when you take in wild animals, a lot of them don't make it, of course. But, you know, yeah. I see, you know, that was that was really hard. You learn that, you know, you can have the best of intentions and you can take care of them that may not make it anyway. So, but, I heard you know, it my whole life. I heard it my whole life because my sister... It was just like that. Uh, yeah. She had she had at least twenty wild animals in her in her house or in the backyard at any given time. Uh, there was always you know plus pets. I mean there was like three cats and two dogs, a couple of raccoons, a parrot. You know uh, uh, that's the pets. And then there was you know she had egrets in her bathtub. You know. She had- <laughs> I had turtles. I found a turtle that had gotten hit by a car and well actually someone brought it to me because they knew I was the animal rescuer girl and I had my tub was taken over by turtles that needed help and much to the chagrin of my parents they're like you have a bathroom use your bathroom I'm like but the turtles (laughs) (laughs) and I just the same way yeah definitely yeah it's you know when you love animals it is what you do what you do and you know it's hard but sometimes you get animals it, we had one dog, and we tried to work with him, and he, he just was not right. We had to put him down anyways eventually, and that was really heartbreaking because sometimes it happens. There's just, you know, you know, there's genetic glitches in the world, and there's, you know, it's unfortunate. So, cause it's really like, odd. Like my yeah. sister, you know, she, she here she worked with all these animals. She even had horses. She had all kinds of animals she worked with her whole life. And then one day, about 10 years before she passed, uh, she went to get stuff out of the dryer and somehow a cat had got in there Oh and, my. and she went and put her hand in there and the cat of course was out of its mind and he dug into her hand and screwed up her hand yeah oh i've heard of that before some cats i mean cats die all the time it's a very common thing. Cats are curious. They get into things. Just the other day, I had to rescue. <laughs> I had to rescue our cat from behind. The, somehow she got it. The drawer was open. She got in there. She somehow climbed to the back. But the dresser's made so well. It was something that Don had given us. It's like a two thousand, three thousand dollar dresser. So it's made really well. You can't just pull a drawer out. Oh my goodness! That took work getting that cat out of there. <laughs> the cats are. They get themselves in some precarious, you know, situations. There's something to the, you know, curiosity killed the cat thing. So. Oh, yeah, there it is. There it yeah. is. There you go. Well, Charles, I really enjoyed speaking with you, and then tomorrow hopefully things will go better and, you know, we'll get this on record and we'll get it up. And, you know, you have so much valuable information, and people need to hear it because, you know, I can – give my viewpoints on 9-11, but, you know, you have it very organized and you have wonderful documentaries. I'm going to share those with people, too. I have a newsletter with thousands of people that read them, so I'm going to get those links out there and get them to everybody as well. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh. Well, thank you, Charles. Hello. You have a good one. And same time, same well, place tomorrow. 
Yeah, that was fun, and uh, uh, hopefully tomorrow will be uh, just as much fun. I hope so. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking forward, Bye-bye now. forward to it. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.